You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 22, Relationships. Love and romance and relationships are things that every one of us has to deal with. And some people don't realize that these things can be studied. And the scientific uh, field of psychology actually does do studies on these things. And today we have an expert on love and relationships, my colleague and friend, Dr. Cheryl Harris-Simchuk. She is an associate professor of psychology at Carleton University, where I also am. And uh, she does research and she teaches classes on long-term relationships. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Let's start off with how relationships begin. Um, Does science have anything to say about um, what kinds of people get drawn together to begin relationships? Uh, This is one of the first questions they started with when they began this field. Uh, People were interested in what draws people together. That is, what are the determinants of attraction? So over the years, some of the key factors that keep showing up in terms of what brings people together are things like uh, being close in proximity. So this refers to things like whether you work together, you live near each other, whether you're in the same class, or you keep bumping into each other. Another determinant of attraction is how similar you are to the person. And this particularly relates to attitudes and values and beliefs, you know, whether you have the same upbringing or the same uh, political or religious beliefs. Another factor that brings people together is people that have a very inviting personality. So people that are warm, people that have a good sense of humor. And finally, and not least, uh, people are drawn together, particularly for intimate romantic relationships, um, if they find each other physically attractive. Hmm. And and um, do people, now is there a relationship between the similarity and the physical attractiveness? Do people, do you know if people tend to be attracted to people that look like them? Uh, yes, the, the research, uh, the findings are strongest for attitudes, beliefs, and values, but uh, certainly there is research to set, suggest that there is some um, a sort of mating in terms of what people look like, but these findings are not as strong as they are for, for vad- values and attitudes. Now, I read about some, some crazy studies that showed that people's, um, the amount that their earlobe was connected to their head was yeah, correlated in married couples. <laughs> <laughs> I heard about that too. Yeah, it's I wonder just, how strong those correlations are. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. But uh, <laughs> it's um, but it's probably true that there are things that we are attracted or not attracted to physically that we're not even aware of. Yeah, that's what's really interesting about this field. Uh, for many of the factors, um, like with physical attractiveness, it seems obvious that you're aware, but then you just brought up that example of, of an aspect of the person that you might not even be aware. But um, things like proximity, like people like to think that they are in control of their lives and who they want to uh, meet. But it could just be the case that they work together or they live near each other and they keep bumping into each other and they might not realize that this is a factor that's uh, increasing their attraction for the person. Now, I remember when I was young, I I had this really embarrassingly long list of criteria for what I was looking for in a partner. Um, and isn't it true that people are sometimes wrong about what they what they're going to be happy with in a partner? Yeah, um, I think especially you know with that example that you brought up there, uh, you know the earlier stages in your life, you're talking about the ideals of love, and a lot of those right. ideals are driven by maybe what you see in the media, um, maybe what you see with your parents, and it's not really based on what you've actually tried out. 
uh, in a relationship or for what you're for what you're looking for. So I, I especially in those beginning parts, people might not realize how much they need somebody with a, a good sense of humor or a good personality or someone who's going to be warm and supportive rather than, you know, uh, someone that's extremely good looking and has a lot of money. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was my that was my thing. My, I, I just sort of um, my list was really lacking in what I now think are like the most important parts of a relationship, the ability to deal with conflict and having mm-hmm. being happy and having a positive personality. And I had stupid things like, you know, knew how to speak Chinese and you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, or, you know, overlap of like, they have to be interested in the same things. They have to have a certain level of intelligence or something. But yeah, um, yeah I was missing some of the, I guess you call them soft skills or something. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about what makes people physically attracted to each other. Are there, are there regularities or how much is beauty in the eye of the beholder with that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. This is a fascinating area. And I, my students are really interested in this. Like, There's a whole science of beauty. And, and this is something that people are really interested in, and, and including myself. I want, to, I, I want to know what those factors are, uh, the, the specific features that draws the you know, average look, good-looking person from the person that's especially good-looking. So when people study attractiveness, uh, they, they even break it down into whether it's facial attractiveness or whether it's uh, physical-slash-body attractiveness. And the features for women and men differ, right? And a lot of times this is based on uh, evolutionary approach for, for what would make someone uh, f- uh, fitter. So for as an example, for, for women, for facial attractiveness, it's features that uh, make the, the woman look younger and, uh, and, and fit to reproduce. So things like uh, larger eyes, uh, small chin, full lips, uh, so with baby-faced features, but not not so young to suggest that they are uh, immature and, and unable to reproduce. Yeah, it's not it's not youth as much as like closer to the repro- the prime reproductive age, which exactly. is like eighteen to twenty six or something, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the, the the numbers are, but that's important that it, that it's older. And so another thing is that uh, being attractive is one thing, but then there's also beautiful. And with beauty, um, someone has the baby face features, but they also have signs of maturity, right? So they're ready to reproduce. So things like prominent cheekbones, narrow cheeks, and a broad smile can be indicators that uh, th- th- they are a suitable age to reproduce. Hmm. And um, and then those are just some specifics, but good-looking faces tend to be averaged. And what that means is not to say that this is just an average-looking pe- person. It's just that the person doesn't have any really distinguishing features that, that jump out. It looks like a, a mix of, 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 of everybody around them, and uh, the, the both sides of their faces are, are symmetrical and are aligned. Right. And is there, are, there dif- are there differences uh, with what we find attractive in men? Yeah, so that was with the face, and most a lot of the research uh, focuses on the face, facial attractiveness for women. But uh, the other type of attractiveness that people study is the body attractiveness. And so for women, um, the big one, uh, and Sir Mix-a-Lot should, uh, is really brought attention <laughs> to this, <laughs> is the waist-to-hip ratio, right? Um, baby got back, and, and there, there's science to, to back that up. Uh, the most uh, attractive waist-to-hip ratio for women is a waist that's 30% smaller than the hips and having a, a moderate boss, a boss maddie, uh, a body mass index. Sorry. And, and so what these two indicators essentially say is that the woman is physically healthy and, and has reproductive value. And for men, 
the features that indicate body attractiveness are typically features that emphasize uh, dominance and strength and ability to protect. And again, these are all from the evolutionary perspective. So things like height, right, the taller the better within a n normal range. Uh, and then the other one is, this one's funny, the, the shoulder to waist ratio. And that's not funny, but what's funny is that one way that is often described is a man having a Dorito chip body. Mm -hmm. And what, what essentially it's just an inverted triangle shape where you have broad shoulders and then it tapers into a smaller uh, waist. So yeah, there are some uh, yeah. certainly some differences. When I talk when I talk about that uh, waist to hip ratio, people will sometimes talk about how different cultures like women who are a little bit heavier and some people like them who are light. Um, but the research I've read says that the, the ratio is always the same, even mm -hmm. though there are differences in how much weight that people prefer on women. And in, in fact, the poorer the country is, the more weight they like. And I, I even saw one study that correlated Playboy models um, measurements with the economic upturns and downturns of American culture. So mm -hmm. when there was a depression, they wanted their women with a little more weight on them, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And yeah, this waist to hip ratio, this keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, certainly, it hasn't been studied in all cultures, so there might be some slight variations. But what's really interesting is uh, the issue that you just, or the point that you brought up about weight. And so, um, you know, you take someone like uh, Marilyn Monroe, who by today's standards, you might consider her uh, certainly the epitome of beauty, but, uh, you know, she, a, a fuller-figured uh, woman. And um, she had the ideal waist-to-hip ratio. And then you take someone like um, Audrey Hepburn, who was much tinier, but she also had a similar waist-to-hip ratio. And, and uh, both women are viewed as, uh, as, right. as highly beautiful people. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so... Now, once people, you know, find somebody that they want to be in a relationship with, um, it is the start of a of a, a relationship that is sometimes a long term relationship. And um, a lot of people think about like a love relationship, um, but I get the impression that love is kind of an overloaded word in English. And you know, when scientists look at what's going on, it's they can break love down into uh, different components. Uh, is that right? That that's correct. And What's so interesting about this, so this question of what is love, mm -hmm. um, this came up in, in the beginning of the field, and there were some people that really took issue with trying to answer that question. Uh, some people felt, some public figures felt like this was a mystery that should be left unsolved, <laughs> otherwise it would ruin it. And relationship scientists, including myself, totally disagree with that. You know, you could... Uh, you could you know how to make a, a, a chocolate cake, but that doesn't necessarily take away from the, the taste of it just because you know what ingredients go into it. And so uh, relationship scientists have you know spent a lot of time thinking about the different ways that love can be defined. And so uh, there's a variety of ways you could do this, but here are some of the, the common ways that it has been uh, conceptualized. The first one that comes to mind is romantic love. Right? It's this passionate love, it's intense, it combines us. sexual desire or attraction, it involves intense emotions, um, and you definitely know it when you feel it. Another type of love is companionate love. So this is a type of love where you enjoy the person's company, you like spending time with them, you like being their friend. Another one is compassionate love. And this refers to self-sacrifice or an altruistic type of love where you would do anything for the person. So that one, is that one distinguishable from romantic and friendship? Like, can you have compassionate love without 
one of the other ones? Oh, this You brought up a very interesting question, and this is something that myself and um, my colleague and former su supervisor, Beverly Fair, were trying to do, and we still don't have the answers. So okay. we were trying to look at unique uh, behaviors or um, emotions or experiences that are associated with each of these types of love. And so theoretically, the idea is that there would be these different uh, behaviors associated with each and that there might be instances in a stage of a relationship where you'd be higher on one type of love, let's say romantic love, but lower on friendship or compassionate. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's really challenging to find those situations and, and to tease to tease that apart. But so that's something right. that we will continue to look at. And, uh, and another type of love is one called attachment love. So if you are feeling stressed or you're worried about something, this is the type of love where you turn to your partner for comfort and security and support. And that's and that's the kind of love that there's between like parents and children, right? Like attachment oh, yes. is, is there for that, right? Yeah, and this is the thing. So a lot of what I'll be talking about today is love and intimate romantic relationships. But this field began more broadly looking at relationships and love for <clears throat> all personal relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So it's friends, family, romantic. And so the four types of love that I listed there, um, there's only one that wouldn't be applicable in, in a friendship uh, or family, and that's romantic love. But all three of the other ones, companionate, compassionate, and attachment, apply across all the relationships. Yeah, I feel that with my dog, right? Everything right. but romantic. Yeah. Like I, when when my one of my dogs died, it really felt like we'd lost a close friend, mm -hmm. and and uh, and I also feel that I'm I'm willing to self sacrifice for the good of the dog once in a while. <laughs> right. No, there there's been more researchers that are interested in studying the relationship that people have with their pets, uh, acknowledging that you know these are highly. Um, highly valuable and important relationships to people and they they take on a lot of the same properties as relationships with others just as a side note um there was a when hurricane katrina hit new orleans there were a lot of people who refused to evacuate their homes because the evacuation shelters wouldn't allow pets to come in oh yeah and so they would stay and risk their own lives because they couldn't bear to leave their pets to die and so um and it's not that, you know, people say, oh, why would they choose their own life over their pet? But it's more like in a, in a condition of uncertainty. You just mm -hmm. can't bear to do it like you'd rather risk it. And so I've heard that they put in um, pet evacuation, and it's not because they care so much about the – like the government has put in this pet evacuation mm -hmm. policy. And it's not because they particularly care about the pets. It's just that they can't get the people to evacuate unless they know their pets are going to be safe. So, yeah, people, right. yeah, people really do love them. Yeah, compassionately love their pets, yeah. So I think the ideal is that you start a relationship with somebody and uh, whether it's a friend or a lover or something and, and over time it grows. Is that what happens? It can be. And that's certainly the ideal. Uh, you, it's, it's, you know, if you were just stayed at the romantic love the entire time and were infatuated with the person, um, then, you know, it wouldn't really it wouldn't really go anywhere and it would it would fizzle out. And this is where uh, the companionate or friendship type love can kick in. And if you are simultaneously uh, engaging in behaviors or if it's just naturally occurring in, in the relationship that th this is something that you feel, then then the relationship has a, a greater chance of sustaining uh, over a longer period of times. On average, do uh, do these feelings of love increase? I wish I had good news like this. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, this is. I really just. I really don't enjoy this part of the the lecture when I'm teaching this to students, and I really don't like it when people ask me this. Um, I'm happy that there's some evidence to uh, to give you an answer. We ask the hard so questions here at Minding the Brain, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. 
Um, so when researchers track couples over time, what they find over time, what I mean by that is over decades, right? So there are some people that are doing some really interesting research. And what they find is that on average, there's a decline in relationship satisfaction. But there's two things that I'd like to add to that. First of all, this applies to some types of love more than others. So certainly the declines uh, are more likely to occur for passion than perhaps some of the other, uh, other types of love, although more research is needed on that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing needs to be emphasized is that these are average declines. And thus some couples are experiencing more decline than others. And you know the other way to think of it is that some are, doing, are better off, right? Not everybody is experiencing these inevitable declines, but yeah. It's not, so, it's not an okay, upward growth. But averages are also weird because, depending on how you're calculating it, if some people's relationships take an incredible nosedive, it could skew the average. It, I mean, or is it that like most people experience a decline? Or is it that most change is decline? Because those could be different, right? That, that is certainly it. And you, and you bring up a good point, right? There could be a, a few couples that are distressed, that are really uh, taking down the, the average. Uh, researchers have looked into this, and they've looked at other ways to look at the average, like look at the, the, the mode or look at the, the patterns for each. And it's on average, there, there's this decline. So it's not just a few that are dragging it down. This happens um, so for the majority most, of the people. Most relationships. Most relationships. Oh my God, yes. that's so strange because isn't there also real, um, evidence that being in a long-term relationship makes you happier? There's a, there's a lot. Yes, there is correlational evidence, right? So this is where researchers are still teasing that apart, that uh, that people that are in long-term relationships um, are not just happier, but they are healthier. But th th of course, there's not causal studies for this, so we don't really know what uh, if it's just certain types of people that are have a certain personality. They haven't that, teased uh, that apart? No, no, but it's hard to, right? You can't make people as randomly assign some people to be in a relationship or not. No, but you can, yeah. can't you do like, I don't know, like this statistics magic where you like look at the stuff that would make them more eligible and factor that in or something? Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, so people look at different control variables and yeah, they've taken that as far as they can go. But yeah, they're we're still, still, they're still, still teasing know. that apart, yeah. Well, you know, I, actually it could be like if, if you get a million dollars, you know, and you spend it the rest of your life, you're going to have lower wealth over the course of your life. But it doesn't mean you're not better off having gotten that million dollars. Maybe it's like that. It's like the relationships mm. declines over time, but it's still so good in general that it's still better for you. I don't know. That could be, right. that yeah. could be something. Okay. Well, yeah. um, let's talk about what – I hate to turn to like what could go – <laughs> what could go wrong? I mean, we should probably talk about like what can go right, but maybe we'll get that when we talk about like practical advice. But what are some of the challenges that people face in maintaining their relationships, trying to keep it from declining too much? Oh, there's so many things, but I'll, we'll also get to, we'll end on a positive note. There's also a lot, researchers okay, spend a lot of time studying good things, but um, so first of all, one of the challenges that comes up is uh, what we bring to the relationship. So our personality, you know, are we high in neuroticism? Are we worrying and do we have a negative disposition? Um, another thing is our childhood experiences. Like what did we observe our parents going through in terms of their relationship? So, so a lot of this has to do with the baggage we bring into the relationship, and that will shape how you interact with your partner and your overall quality. Another one is external stressors. So this, these are things that just pop up in the relationship that are in some ways outside of your control. So things like declining health, financial troubles, uh, problems at work, uh, dealing with uh, a, a sick extended family member. So these can all put a lot of, of strains on an otherwise happy relationship and, and, uh, and, and cause some dissatisfaction. Uh, two of the things that, that I've studied in my research are 
boredom and conflict. And so conflict, uh, and this is an area that researchers have spent a lot of time looking into, um, is a really important challenge to look at because it's, it's only natural that when you spend a lot of time with somebody, for instance, if you live with them, and you're highly interdependent with this person, you share a mortgage, uh, maybe you carpool, you make a lot of decisions together, it's only natural and it's inevitable that you will have opposing goals at, at some time. And so here's an example. I mean, it could be something as small as, you know, sh who should take out the garbage in the house? Which in-laws should you visit at the holidays? Should they put the bonus check in the bank for the future or go on an exotic uh, vacation? <laughs> yeah. So, so the challenge in these situations is minimizing expressions of negativity, right? Because a lot of these things you're talking about on your side, it means a lot to you. And on your partner's side, their opinion means a lot to them. And, and so it's our instinct to, to, you know, when we're being attacked for having a different opinion that we would lash out. So this is, this is mm -hmm. one important challenge. So uh, just on that, um, sure. I feel like I hear advice that is, uh, I guess, gendered in that um, women sometimes need to be encouraged to make their preferences known. I mean, I don't know if you know of anything like that. I mean, is it, but is it like generally true that you should, that to tell people that you should try to minimize, what were you saying, the negative? Yeah, minimize the negativity. I think what you're getting at in terms of gender differences, this is a hot topic um, just in general in psychology, but particularly in relationship science. And one of the things that, uh, with that issue that you brought up with letting your concerns be known, it, it might be something related just to the power dynamics in the relationship mm -hmm. more generally. And it just, there just might be a tendency for uh, women to have a lower power in the relationship. Um, and so the advice, you could give it more broadly to people that have a lower power to, you know, potentially voice their um, different opinions because one thing that could happen if, if the person does, with the lower power doesn't voice their opinions is it might lead to resentment. Right, right. So you don't want to overdo it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so conflict is about, yeah, con yeah okay, so you, that's good. You, descri you describe conflict as like opposing goals. Um, but, I mean, uh, are there, there are other sources of like problems in relationships, right? Yeah, okay. So so one is the opposing goals, and that usually brings out expressions of negativity. And then the other one that's been more recently, since about um, the early 2000s, um, that's been focused on, is diminished rewards in the relationship. And so this relates to what I study, and that's relational boredom. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and so with boredom, um, what essentially it is, is that after extended periods of time with a person, things that were once rewarding start to lose their rewarding oomph, so to speak. Right, because um, we habituate. Yeah, exactly. That is, we become habituated to the rewards and we need more. But if we wanted to maintain that level of reward, we just have to keep coming up with more and more uh, new and exciting rewarding experiences. And, you know, that would take lots of time, resources, and it might seem like an impossible standard. So, um this is when, when boredom could, can set in. And so unlike conflict, which relates to expressions of negativity, boredom relates to diminished expressions of positivity and rewards. So here in my, in my research, when we ask people what it means to be bored in their relationship, they feel like it's 
wasn't like it was in the beginning, right? It's no longer exciting. It lacks the spark that it once had. It feels effortful, you know, to come mm. to do anything with a partner. And people might also find themselves wanting to spend time away from their partner. So hmm. if you if you think of your relationship like as a plant, um, when you're bored, to you it feels like it's no longer growing, right? You're not you're no longer seeing any flowers blooming, and it's just staying as is. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it seems like. Um, and if you look at the way we talk about relationships and love, there's this journey metaphor or growth metaphor that mm -hmm. that it's 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 not really there's something wrong with it if it's not changing. Right. Yeah. yeah it's and, interesting. Well, yeah, I think that could be. Um, we don't know whether that's an essential piece. Certainly, that's a theory, and that's certainly within our culture. Growth in relationships is is really important, but you know whether that applies to other cultures uh, remains to be studied. Yeah, yeah. Um, and long, t you know, and also because we're living so much longer now, the you know, the marriages <laughs> have to survive a lot longer. I, I was reading um, about the so-called divorce crisis. And if you look at um, death, oh, actually, so if you look at dis dissolution of marriage, it stayed constant. Divorce is going up, but mm -hmm. dissolution of marriages is not. But it's just because people were dying so much sooner. So if you're right. in a crappy marriage and you only had five, but you're only going to live another 10 years, what's the point of getting divorced? But now, if you live another yeah. 30 years, you could find another <laughs> partner, right? So it's it's it seems like marriage is a very old institution, but it's being put, it's an old uh, an old practice that is really being put to the test with this incredible longevity that we're experiencing in the in the modern world. Yeah, and this is where I feel like the, uh, looking at boredom and how people navigate that and how people deal with that challenge. Um, I, I just think it will have high high value, especially as you said. For you know, relationships are we're, we're living longer, and so are our relationships. Yeah, yeah. So, what, 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 tell me about the stuff you do in your in your lab. Oh well, in my in my lab, um, we like to uh, measure boredom, and we also. And we also like to examine the challenges uh, people face when they are trying to manage their boredom. Like, you know, they feel bored, so what do you do next? And 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 my belief is that uh, people, and my research suggests this, is that people know what to do. If you say, you know, if you're bored in your relationship, what should you do? And, this, and what they say matches what researchers suggest you should do. That is, try something new and exciting with your partner. Something to help see your, uh, your partner in a new light, right? So you're feeling those uh, feelings of excitement like you had in the mm. beginning. Right. And research suggests that if you engage in these types of activities versus ones that are just pleasant and comfortable, that this can lead to boosts in satisfaction. But this doesn't always work out so perfectly in everyday life where you have to coordinate your schedules, coordinate your your interests, uh, and, and find something that that you that you both enjoy. And so that's that's something that I've been looking at. I've been looking at the the challenges that people face in trying to do these good things that will combat boredom. Hmm. And um, I think you made a good point that I didn't want the listeners to miss is that you distinguished these challenging activities from merely pleasant. And mm -hmm. I think what part of what you're getting at, correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, these new, I think you call them self or relationship expanding activities, are not always pleasant. Sometimes they're particularly challenging. And is that an important aspect of it? Yeah, researchers are still trying to figure that out. But it's true that um, in the past, uh, when this research began, people thought that engaging in new 
uh, exciting and in some a term that I uh, uh, use and I draw from a model in my field called the self-expanding people thought that this might be risky for the relationship you know it might rock the boat too much to try something new um, and and then as their common control group, they would have people engage in activities they've done before, but that were rated as positive and pleasant. Hmm. And and so what the research suggests, you know, you need everything. You need the pleasant, you need the comfortable, but you also need to mix things up and try something new to to promote uh, to promote growth. I know you're I, I know Cheryl, we're friends, and uh, Cheryl's a very careful scientist. So, you know, if she, says, <laughs> if she says something is right, I feel very confident that it is because she's a, a, a very, very rigorous, thorough scientist when it comes to um, being sure and confident and all that kind of thing. That, well, said, uh, <laughs> that said, do you, have, uh, um, do you have anything more to add about um, averting boredom or, is it, or can you just make a broad, you know, try, try new exciting things with your partner? Yeah, we still have so much. We have still so much to know about that. It's another thing to know is you want to make it something that you both enjoy. So you want to make sure that it's not just something that you really like and that mm -hmm. your, your partner detests because there's at least just some initial <laughs> research. You know, for instance, if I took my partner salsa dancing, I would absolutely love that. I, based on the feedback of suggestions in the past, I don't think he would like that as much. So perhaps <laughs> right. there's something we can find some, some common ground where at least we can get some some level of, of enjoying enjoyment from it. We well, um, know that leads back to like the the what you said draws people together to begin with are similarities of interest, right? So it's right. one of the reasons perhaps that's you know that it's good to have similarity of interest early on is that it it provides fuel for um, self-expanding and relationship-expanding activities later on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You both love sure. reading, you both love travel, you both hate travel. Yeah. <laughs> like those, those things are going to matter when you start trying to uh, get it, spice it up and, re and reduce the boredom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, all right, do you want to go to, you want to move on to some tips for relationships? Sure. Um, I, I also want to add that in the besides boredom, the reason why I was hold, drawn to this whole area is because so much of the research before was on how to fix conflict, right? The other challenge, and and the idea here was that if you remove the negativity, that your relationship would be good, you would be happy. But researchers and clinicians noted, that, you know, that even if people knew how to manage their conflict, that maybe there still could be something missing, and that that something missing could be could be the growth. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight that that, that um, de-escalating conflict is still a really important thing to work on in your relationship. And what does and, that mean, de-escalating conflict? Yeah. So researchers have looked uh, studied ways to get people to um, reduce the amount of negativity. So naturally, when you're talking about opposing goals. Um, it's normal for there to be a bit of uh, negative affect that is experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, for the very least, you could feel frustrated. And when somebody feels frustrated, they might feel personally attacked. And then you might call your partner a name or dismiss their idea. And so when you it's inevitable to get yourself in those situations. But one thing you can do uh, is try to reduce it. And you can reduce it by um, accepting responsibility, maybe for something. Uh, paraphrase the, the partner's arguments. 
So you're showing them that you're listening and that you're understanding. Um, you can use self-disclosure with I statements. So rather than saying, you always do this, you can comment on, let's say, let's say I tend to do this, right? Focus on yourself. Hmm. And, and the other thing is that, you know, even though it's a conflict, you can, you're selling a relationship. So you can add some, you know, a little bit of, uh, maybe you touch them on, on the back or the arm as like a little bit of a approval and affection to know that even though you're differing in these goals, you know, this, the big picture is you still, you still love them. And then another one is you can add a little bit of a little bit of humor. So mm-hmm. if you find yourself, uh, you know, you're just caught up in a, a negative ping pong game with your, match with your with your partner, you know, maybe it's maybe you in a moment if it works, stick your tongue out at your partner as an example, and you know the partner might realize like, yeah, we're we're fighting like children. This is kind of silly, and then that might give you that just that moment to catch your breath and approach it in another another right, way. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about some science-based um, tips that we can give people. I assume a lot of our listeners are in relationships. Um, how do you increase happiness and uh, prevent decrease of happiness <laughs> in the relationship? <laughs> yeah, so um, there was a really interesting book that I read uh, by a researcher that I uh, highly respect. His name is Dr. Eli Finkel. He's from Northwestern University. And he put together in his book, The All or Nothing Marriage, that was meant to be, you know, for uh, for everyday people, right? Not just academics. And he put together a list of love hacks. So these are quick and dirty tips that you can use in your marriage or or your long-term relationship to fix it with minimal amount of work. And so. Um, they are divided into two groups. The first thing is focusing on weaknesses and negativity. So one thing you can do to reduce the negativity is to simply reinterpret your partner's bad behavior. Um, so for instance, if your partner yells at you about taking out the garbage um, just as they come in from work, uh, one thing that you can do is reinterpret this bad behavior to something that is external. Like perhaps this is their first day working on a really challenging project and you know they're stressed. Or maybe you know that at this time of day your partner is hangry, right? Um, and then uh, another thing is you can attribute it to something that will change soon. That is, it's temporary. So everything is essentially staying the same. It's just about how you're looking at it. And it's amazing. Uh, we know from psychology research that simply reinterpreting or reattributing a, a behavior can make you look at the situation differently and make you feel differently. Right. Um, another, and this is all in this, the same camp, is reappraising conflict. So for instance, if you and your partner are having a disagreement about um, which in-laws to spend with uh, at the holidays, um, or who has to clean the dishes, uh, one thing you could do is adopt a different perspective. And what I mean by that is you can imagine, um, imagine you're fighting with your partner, just imagine being a neutral third party, observing the disagreement, and try to think about how that neutral third party um, would see the situation and how they might find a solution forward. So you, in some ways, you're stepping out, right? You're so not you're like getting sort of up. imagining there's an arbitrator there and what would the arbitrator think? Yes, so exactly. So this actually works? Like studies have, have looked at that and shown that this can help? That's yes, great. It, yeah, it's, it's all, uh, there's some evidence cited in this book, and it all fits in the general camp of, of reinterpreting. And, uh, and there was this one study, I forget the details, but they did have people adopt different perspectives when they were in a conflict, and, and people were happier when, when, they use, when they use this one. Okay, great. And then another one is uh, adopting something called a growth mindset. So essentially, all this means is acknowledging that happy relationships need work. 
right? Uh, you know, some people believe that, you know, you're just destined to be with your love. And if you're destined to be with them, that everything is going to be perfect. And any anybody else, you know, you could just say goodbye to because they're not meant to be your soulmate. But that's not how it works. Um, and, and so researchers find that, that people that view uh, relationships and disagreements more specifically, um, if they view them as an opportunity to learn more about the partner and deepen the bond, that they're, they're better off in the relationship. So all of these suggestions here uh, don't require, I mean, they require you to be aware of them, but they don't require money. They just require you to step back and think things, think about yeah, things a little internal. differently. Yeah, they're very internal. They're very yes. internal, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I think I read somewhere, maybe this is just totally wrong, that actually thinking of yourself as being destined to have been with this person can actually help keep you committed and stuff. Are you suggesting that, like, thinking in terms of, like, we were fated to be together or, or whatever is, is not good? Um, research suggests that people who have what is called these destiny beliefs, mm. um, if if they well, what ends up happening is if they have these in the beginning of the relationship and things are going well, maybe they will perceive at that moment their relationship will go on and on. But at the first whiff of conflict or disagreement, it's overinterpreted as an indicator that you know it's it, you know time to get out. We're we're not we're not meant to be. Okay. And in generally, people who have these destiny beliefs, their relationship satisfaction uh, tends to be lower than those who have these things called growth beliefs, simply because conflict is inevitable. So, yeah, it sounds like that having this, like, sort of a fairy tale-ish idea of destiny sets you with unrealistic expectations. Yes. So a, a conflict is interpreted as an indication that the relationship isn't good. Ex yes. Right. So, I mean, that sounds like a really important thing is that if you if you do have too much of a fairy tale-ish idea of true love or blah, 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 that you are going to misinterpret inevitable conflicts as instead of just part of a normal relationship as a sign that you're with the wrong person. Which right. means you could be jumping from person to person looking for a perfect relationship you'll never find. Right. Yeah. Right. It right. does have interesting implications. So are there ways to enhance the strengths of a relationship yeah. as well? Yeah. And this, I got really excited when I said that because this relates to, to my research. I like to, um, my research fits in with the trend of the positive psychology movement since the 2000s, where there was a shift to focusing on the positive things that that people add in relationships and just the positive psych movement focuses on positive things people do in general rather than focusing on the negative things or the abnormal things about people and and so uh, one of the things that people can do is as relates to my research is try some new and ex exciting leisure activity with your partner mm -hmm. um, but that could take some time and energy so I have some other little quick things that I could I'm going to share with you one is is gratitude um, so some people might feel that, you know, if you're already in a long-term relationship, you, you know, you know, that this, per you know, that the person loves you and they're there for you. And so you, in some ways you might take it for granted, especially if your partner does a nice gesture, like it might seem like overkill to say thank you. But research suggests that people that do say thank you and show that they are responsive to their partner's little small gestures, that they are happier in their relationship. So um, for instance, if your uh, partner brings you your favorite coffee drink while you're working on a, on a really tough project, or if they drive you to the airport or takes the dog out for a walk so you can go to your yoga class on time, um, if you, you know, if you show that that you, this really matters to you and that you're really grateful that your partner's responsive, that this can create this like uh, cyclical uh, positivity um, where your partner g gets the thank you, they feel good, and then in turn they might want to do this uh, uh, more often 
and then so you it's feel not just good. Inter- so it's internal gratitude, but also expressions of gratitude. Yes, yes, and there's yes. It's it's you don't just want to keep it within. You, it's important to show to your partner in whichever way you express gratitude. Uh, it's important that they see that. And there's research that looks at uh, people that uh, they look. They have couples in these day-to-day diary studies, and they look for mismatches. So they look at instances where a person thought they expressed gratitude, um, but then when they <laughs> ask the other person, you know, did this person, you know, say thank you, or they, the person says no, they didn't. And so, you know, you could see that some, these What's going uh, discrepancies. On there? Like, what did the per- what do people say that they think is an expression of gratitude, but doesn't work? Like what kind yeah, of, what no. might that be? So a lot of times with this research, they don't get into the specifics. They just get in the ratings of, uh, of you know, in general, how, how it happened. But um, So if somebody brings you flowers and you're like, oh, those are nice, that's not the same as, um, thank you so much. That was really thoughtful. Exactly. Maybe something right. like that. <laughs> I think it's a matter of how genuine it is. Or, you know, you might think like, oh, I went through the trouble to say thank you. But, you know, it, maybe it didn't seem like to the other person that they that you really meant it. You know, like it really had an impact on you. Right, right. Um, another one is sharing good news and also being a good partner and celebrating it with your partner. So, for instance, if something good happens, like you got a promotion at work or a colleague you respect complimented your work, um, sharing it makes you feel good. But importantly for relationship scientists, we're interested in how the partner responds to it on the other end. So it's really important that if your partner shares good news with you, that you reciprocate this positive energy. So if you get a text from your partner, like that that person got a promotion, respond quickly and maybe add some of your favorite emojis in there. Like that makes the person feel really, really good. Whatever works in your relationship. That's yeah, a common I, way I'm, that people can express Something that. I love about my wife is that she's so, she's very expressive and excitable. And not just with me, with anybody when they express good news, she's like squealing with joy and dancing (laughs) around the room and clapping. And and I've tried to imitate her a little bit just because or, you know, model her because I think that's that's such a wonderful thing. Um, I I imagine that it can be harder if there's um, uh, competition in the relationship. Like if if you feel that you are inferior to your partner. Yeah. You might have a harder time appreciating their successes or something. I mean, yeah. maybe that has something to do with, um, you know, why romantic partners are, ma- you know, might be another similarity thing. If you're at similar levels of achievement in life, the competition won't, like, get in the way of this kind of, uh, you know, sharing of, I'm just I'm just think, coming up with ideas. <laughs> I think it's, you know what, I think that's a really interesting idea about, you know, how people navigate the sharing good news. And again, like I said before, with my area um, on boredom and, you know, trying new and exciting activities, you know, easier said than done. There might be specific instances in the relationship where sharing good news is not that easy. Like there might be a reason why you might not want to share it with your partner and why you might not get that that enthusiastic response from them. Right. So if you're getting promotions all over the place and your partner's <laughs> getting fired, you, it's yeah. hard to expect them to be all excited Right. And and this is the thing. The main thing in relationships, uh, the one thing that most relationship researchers can agree on is that it's important that we're responsive. Right. So it's not Mm -hmm. to say, like, just add novelty, just say thank you or just share good news. And and that sort of thing that this all within a context, right, of being responsive in a particular relationship. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah, right. You don't want to just be like a a robot that just like you press a (laughs) button and it's like, good job. I love you. You have to be smart about it. <laughs> no, 
No, it has to come across as genuine that that and and well timed and everything. Yeah. So in a romantic relationship, and and maybe even certain kinds of friend relationships, what's the role of um, physical touch? Yeah, I'm not sure how that plays in in friendships, but um, more and more research is focusing on these smaller expressions of affection, physical affection in relationships. So I'll just first talk about intimate relationships. Um, Initially, people, when you think about physical affection, you might instantly think about sexual experiences. Um, And certainly those are important for relationship quality. But one thing that researchers have begun to focus on are these little small gestures, you know, in much the same way, like uh, saying thank you or, or... sharing your partners, uh, reciprocating their energy for their good news. Another thing is just little, little touches throughout the day. So maybe it's a, a hand on the back or on the arm or a holding of a hand, just something to show that you care for the person. So if, the, if your partner shares some really uh, tough news with you and you provide a hug or put your hand on their back to console them, the, these little things add up and, and they show that you, show that you care. And and a lot of this behavior, um, people think it stems from what occurs in uh, early early childhood between uh, primary caregiver and infants, right? So if you think of, of, of attachment theory and this idea that the bonds we have as with our primary caregivers um, later shape our relationships in adults, you see how it makes perfect sense, right? So when you're an infant and you're scared, maybe you experience stranger danger um, and and you you go to your primary caregiver for uh, a hug or for comfort, uh, it feels good, uh, you feel loved and cared for it. And, and this also carries through on into adulthood uh, and particularly in romantic relationships where this is often, the romantic partner is often viewed as, a, as an attachment figure. Hmm. You know, I, I, that touch thing, uh, one thing that has happened with, with me is, re- and also it's reappraising, uh, I walk around a lot in the city with my wife and our hands would just run into each other accidentally. Mm-hmm. And I would always say I was sorry or excuse me or whatever. But then I <laughs> decided to reinterpret it. And now we, we treat it as though our hands are trying to kiss each other. So Aww. if my hand <laughs> runs into hers, I'll make a kissing sound and then she will too. And then sometimes <laughs> we'll, we'll end up holding hands. <laughs> Anyway, I think maybe we better stop before I make everyone throw up. Um, (laughs) But Cheryl, this has been so interesting, and uh, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on, Jim. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible in part by white blood cells, protecting our bodies against both infectious disease and foreign invaders. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.